Good morning, Gateway. Hey, I'd like to start by, first of all, saying thank you, Gateway. A couple of weeks ago, I stood up here and preached, and for those of you who don't know, uh, one of the things I hate most in life is standing in front of people, and you guys made it a wonderful experience. Thank you. Thank you. You guys encouraged me, and I cannot begin to tell you how much of a blessing it was. One of the conversations that I was able to have with you guys was with Eric Saunders. Is Eric here today? He's back, okay. You know, here I was thinking that I challenged you guys, but Eric came to me, and during our conversation, he had a, a great challenging thought for me. With everything that I preached, he said, well, what are we going to do? And I asked, what do you mean? He says, well, you're saying we need to go witness, right, and find an audience, so let's go do it. So I said, okay. <laughs> so we've got something planned, and next week we're going to try and execute it. I won't tell you what it is but I do hope to come back and share that with you. So pray for us. But better yet, maybe some of you guys can tag team together and go find an audience. That's a straight mission from Jesus, remember? But if you're going to do that, if you want to take that mission, I'd be remiss if I did not warn you about what you might face. And that's what today is about. We've got a large section of scripture that we're going to cover I'm going to start from Acts 5, 17 through 42, and I'm going to pick up in Acts 6, 8, and I'm going to take it all the way to 8, 1. I'm going to read every single verse. No, I'm serious. I'm not. I'm not. <laughs> so with that as a backdrop, let's pray. Great and Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this incredible privilege that we have to be able to gather together each week and to be able to hear from you. We get the chance to sing praises unto your name and we don't get persecuted for it. We don't get dragged to prison. We don't get ostracized like we see our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world. And so, Father, help us not to take this for granted. We desperately need to hear from you because we know that you have all the answers of life. So even now, Lord God, I pray that you empower me to speak effectively for your people. May you be glorified and your people be blessed as I commit it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to start with... A short reading, I will read 517 through 533. So out of reverence for God's word, would you guys stand with me? It should be on the screen for you. Then the high priest and all his associates who were members of the party of the Sadducees were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people all about this new life. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts as they had been told, and began to teach the people. When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there, so they went back and reported. We found the jail securely locked, with the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were at a loss, wondering what this might lead to. Then someone came and said, look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. The apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in his name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, 
We must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed, hanging him on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior, that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. You may be seated. Three big ideas I'd like you to consider as we're going through these passages, okay? Aversion, adversity, and advancement. Aversion, adversity, and advancement. Let's talk about the aversion first. This is the aversion to God's movement. And this is what we see with the, the, the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees. The very first verse that I read, it says, Then the high priest and all his associates who were members of the party of the Sadducees were filled with jealousy. One of the first things that we see with this aversion is that they're continuously moving against the things of God. Why were they filled with jealousy? As Alex went through last week with us, right before this verse, verse 16, he says, The crowds gathered also from the towns from around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits, and all of them were healed. So you got to wonder, this is the second time we're coming on to the scene with the Sadducees and the Pharisees, and we're finding that they have this bent away from the things of God. People are being helped, people are being healed, but yet they are standing there with jealousy. you got to wonder why. I like how Luke records this for us. He gives us what the Pharisees did by being moved to jealousy and then throwing the apostles in jail, Again, but then hear what we see. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people all about this new life. God dispatches an angel. Now, anytime we see an angel in scripture, it's serious business. Back in the Old Testament, there was a general who was about to siege Israel, and he had this incredible boast. No one is going to be able to save you. In answer to that boast, God dispatches an angel. That single angel wipes out 185,000 people. Soldiers dead, just like that. So when an angel shows up, it's big business. But this angel just came with news. He's going to let you out, and he's going to have them just keep doing what they're doing. Now, as we go through this, you need to understand how this aversion to God's movement is played out. The first thing that we saw was this emotional response from the Sadducees, right? This was jealousy. We're going to see a couple of more emotional responses from them as well, too. Notice what they say when they find the apostles. Now, Luke does a very interesting thing. He mentions the angel, but he never mentions them again in his account. There's one main reason for that. The Sadducees never believed in resurrection, nor did they believe in angels. Their thinking was very, very narrow, and it helps to explain to us why they were so bent against some of the things that they saw. Their whole deal was a political power play, right? And so when anything threatened that, they didn't want to hear anything. They just wanted to make sure that they could stamp it out. Remember Levi, the lame guy from last time? When he was healed, they didn't say anything about the healing. They just wanted to cover it up. They wanted to kind of silence it, okay? So when we see what their reactions are, we're almost always going to see an emotional response. But I like what goes on here. Now, as they come down... When the uh, apostles were released from the prison by the angel, they go looking for him the next day, and they didn't find him, okay? Now, notice what they say. 
when the officers come back, they say, we found the jail securely locked with the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found them, no one inside. Apparently, God sent one of his neat angels because he locked up behind himself. He left no trace that he was there, okay? That was a good one, okay? So what we find, though, when they finally brought back, they talked to them, and this is the response that they say. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. You see what they're trying to do? They're trying to excuse their role in Jesus' death. They were the ones that were directly responsible for moving toward this act of hanging him on the cross. But yet they're saying, you're, you're trying to make us guilty, as if they didn't really have anything to do with it. Again, a pointer to the aversion they have towards God's movement. Lastly, when the answer came from the apostles, Peter and the apostles, they don't move away from their normal answers. It's the same thing over and over again. They talk about how God raised Jesus from the dead, and he said, he didn't let them get away with this excuse. He said, you hung him on the cross. You did. They weren't going to allow him to get away with it, but see, the thing that they missed was what Peter says. He says, look, it's not just because you did this. There's forgiveness if you acknowledge it, and they missed that altogether. Instead, they got angry, another display. So we got jealousy, and we got anger, right? And what they wanted to do, they wanted to kill the apostles. They were plotting to put them to death. But there was one among them that stood up, a man by the name of Gamaliel. He's an important figure, but I'm just going to glance quietly and softly over what he did. All he says is, look, he said, guys, you got to be careful about what you're planning on doing with these guys. Remember, we've got history here. You remember Thutis and Judas? Both those guys, they tried to lead a rebellion, and it failed. So if this is about men... It's not going to go anywhere. But if it's about God, you're not going to stop it, number one. But number two, you might find yourself fighting against God himself. That actually persuades them not to kill him. Listen to what they do. His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles and had them flogged. And they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. That's spite. See, they were convinced by Gamaliel, leave him alone. But because they were violating every command that they gave them, they got angry and wanted to make sure that they understood that they were serious. So out of spite, they had them flogged. Now, don't know if you know what flogging is all about, but the most likely punishment that these the disciples received was the 40 minus 1. That means that they took lashes, 39 of them, each of them. See, this was used as a disciplinarian action, okay? But this, the way the Sanhedrin used it, this was intimidation. They were letting the uh, apostles know that we are serious about you not doing this. And so we moved from a small opposition to full-out persecution, okay? But that helps us to see their eagerness for retribution. So we have an emotional response, they're, they're trying to excuse their role in the death of Jesus, and their eagerness to move to retribution against the, the apostles. But in this very makeup, one of the things that we get to see is how the early church dealt with adversity. That was a quick move for opposition to this adversity that they were seeing. They were being threatened with their lives and having physical abuse laid upon them. 
But you've got to ask, how is it that they do this? Why would they even go with this? Because look at, look at the response that they have. The apostles left the Sanhedrin after getting t- t- 39 lashes, okay? 39 lashes. They bore their back. They, they ripped off their top clothing, and they beat them. A lot of people died from this. Yet the apostles walked away, and here's what the scripture says. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing, but they have been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for his name. What? Taking 39 lashes, most likely beaten and bleeding, and they leave rejoicing. I'll get to that in a minute. Now, remember, I told you, the apostles always maintain their focus. And so in order for us to deal with adversity, because when we as God's messengers, when we carry this message out, you can bet that we are going to run into some opposition. Not everybody's going to want to hear what we have to say because we're going to fly in the face of the things that they hold dear. And we're going to break them down because the truth does that. The truth is facts are one of those wonderful things that beats up on the, those little fairy little dreams that people have. Truth decimates it. And people have an adverse reaction to it. And so in the process of it, we have to experience adversity. But how do we get through it? How do we really make work through that? Number one, the emphasis was on the resurrection. Jesus rose from the dead. That's what they kept saying. It's not like we are doing this because this is some kind of new fad. We are witnesses of what actually happened. You put a man to death, and we watched him get up. People, you got to say amen to something like that. Right? So if we don't keep our focus where it needs to be, when we hit adversity, anything's bound to happen. Anything. Because we could lose our focus but not disciples. They were fixed, and they always emphasized the resurrection. Now, notice, when they got let go from the jail, the angels told them, go back to the temple, the scene of the crime. That's where they got arrested. And he tells them to go back there. And they do, obedient as they are. And when the captain of the guard comes, see, they already had the mob on their side. The people, because that's what the scripture says, they came and they didn't use any force because they were afraid that the people were going to mob them or stone them. So the apostles actually had a choice to not go, but they did it willingly. Now, you know full well that if you go to the scene of the crime, if you get arrested somewhere and you go and you show up there again, doing the very same things that they were telling you to, hey, You've got to expect some kind of retaliation. They're not going to take this one lightly. So when we are doing what we do, when we, present-day church, when we go out there and talking to certain groups of people, let's not close our eyes to what's out there, nor let's not close our eyes to what we should actually expect. There should be an expectation of some kind of retaliation. Some. Now, you're going to have some good but you know you're going to have some bad, because this is not a message that is universally accepted around the world. If it were, our jobs would be real easy. There would be no reason for us to have to worry about talking about Jesus, because everybody would take it, right? But we know that that is not the case. So like wise stewards of what God has given us, we have to expect some kind of retaliation. It's the only way we truly get through the adversity. Next, you know, it's not an easy thing for someone when they plotting or yelling to scre- and screaming to kill you right there in front of you. But you know what we have to do? We have to endure it. See, that's what Jesus did. Hebrews 12, 2, it says, For the joy that was set before him, 
the joy that was set before him, the thing that he was looking forward to, he endured the cross, despising the shame. That means that he saw, not very long from now, when we all would be with him and would be with him forever. And he saw that good enough to take the cross on and all the shame that came with it. So when we see adversity coming, we got to brace ourselves. There is no way around this because Jesus didn't go around it. And because Jesus didn't go around it, we cannot go around it. He promised us the same thing he experienced, we're going to experience. So what we have to do is endure the rage. We've got to be able to take it. Why? Because of what Jesus did. It's not rocket science, but when it comes, it's hard because the emotions start to kick in. And everything, hey, if you guys were willing to, if some of you guys were just the type to like pain, I'd worry about you. If you didn't want to run from pain, something would be wrong with you. But we have to be able to see it for what it is. We've got to be able to endure the rage that comes. And lastly, when we're talking about adversity, you can't miss what the, the disciples did. They rejoiced after taking 39 lashes. What is that about? They remembered, again, what Jesus had done for them. That was so powerfully impacting that they thought that this, taking 39 lashes, that was nothing. He gave up his life. We're not there yet. All he did was beat us. And so they kept the perspective. Helped us. Because these guys, are what they're doing, they're setting the standard. But here's the beauty of this all. Despite the adversity, despite the aversion from people that we have, what we see is the advancement of God's message. God's word continued to go forward. Now, you know, I'm going to tap into what Alex did for us last week. Last week he talked through several passages, but the one that I want to focus in on is Acts 6, 6, 7. So the words of God spread, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. You can't stop God's movement. Isaiah 55, 11 tells us clearly, look, my word will not return to me void. It will go out and accomplish what I want it to do. But what I want you to understand is that God never does that. I mean, while he has the power to do it all on his own, he never does. Because he's dealing with people, the most effective medium he uses is always people. That's us. So for God's message to advance, you're always going to have a person behind it, always. And he's chosen us to be that medium. Now, how do we maintain the type of attitude necessary to move God's word forward? Well, the disciples give it to us. They had an earnest resolve to stay at it. You see what they did? After the, they were being beaten, day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. After taking 39 lashes. Hey, look, if it were me, I would want to take a vacation, something. I need a break. I just took 39 lashes. Their resolve was so strong. Not only did they get up from this, but they kept on doing the very thing that got them in trouble in the first place. The reason they took the 39 lashes was because they were teaching about this Jesus. And they kept on doing it day after day in the temple courts and moving from house to house. They were very, very public about this. They did not go into hiding. Well, you know, that is a corporate look about dealing with adversity. 
That's the church. They gave us the standard by which we, we live, okay? But you got to ask the question, and inevitably, when we get pulled out on our own and we have to stand on our own, how do we fare? How do we do when we're on our own? Because, hey, look, there's strength in numbers, isn't it? You know, I was going back through Daniel the other day, and I love this. If you know the story of Daniel, there were four young Hebrews that were in the very beginning of Daniel. And Daniel was the primary guy, but he had three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The one thing I love about these guys, I mean, they were Banner brothers. They were young guys, about teenage years. And there was this statue that the king of Babylon had erected. And he made a proclamation that any time you hear music, you bow down and worship the, the statue. And they refused. And the report got back to the king, and he brought them to him and asked him, is this true, basically? Now listen to what they say. I love it. Now when you hear, and he's forcing them now. He's trying to force them. Now when you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, if you're ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. That Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hands. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, we will not bow. Don't you just love that? There's strength in numbers. When me and my boys are up here, if somebody comes and makes us try to do something that we don't, it's, there's strength in numbers. You say, look, hey, respectfully, O king, we're not going to do it. You could do whatever it is that you want to do, but we're not going to bow. But there's the strength in numbers. How about when we're on our own? That brings us to Stephen. Because when we have to face it alone, I'm not saying it has to be a different story, but oftentimes it could be a different story. Now, Chapter 6 sets us up for Stephen, and I want you to hear how they describe his life, okay? Now, Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Why is that important? When we start chapter 6, a few years have passed since that issue with the flogging and and the apostles, okay? The disciples have grown, and now there are Hellenistic Jews coming in along with the Hebrews that have being added to the church. Now, it's very important for you to understand that Stephen, a Hellenistic Jew, now is showing the same characteristics that the Hebrew Jews, the original 12, less Judas, they were displaying. It's going to be important for you to understand that God is now starting to break through boundaries, racial boundaries. Remember, the witness was supposed to go to ends of the world, and now we're beginning to see him manifest that same power in other people. Still Jews, But now we're talking about the Hellenistic Jews, okay? Stephen, a man full of God's uh, grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition rose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. So, he was a good communicator. He had the ability to do signs and wonders and miracles, and he knew how to defend the faith. And it's very important you understand the Hellenistic Jews, that's what they, they kind of mastered in. They love sitting around talking and discussing different items of controversy and trying to work through that. 
But when Stephen came on the scene, he focused the primary on Jesus, and nothing that they said to try and dissuade him or go against him or refute him, nothing worked. He was very sound, and he shut them down. Now, you know full well, that's bound to get you in trouble. And for Stephen, it did. What happened with him was they could not argue against him, so they resorted to the only thing they could. They lied. And so one of the things that they brought charges against was the issue of the temple and the law. Okay? Now, they talk in verse 14 of chapter 6, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place, meaning the temple, and change the customs of Moses handed down to us. That is the law. Okay? All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin, in verse 15, looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. You ever wonder why, or you ask the question, there's a lot of signals for the Sanhedrin, and they miss every single one of them. Okay, if you see a man whose face seems to look like an angel, you think you want to hear what he has to say? They were patient for a while, but it didn't last very long. Now, I'm not going to have much on the screen as I go through chapter 7, because chapter 7 is 60 verses, and I don't want to bore you with every single verse that we want to talk. But I love Stephen's insight into this issue and what he answers in his defense. I think it's worthy of our note. Okay? So we're going to have the screen just kind of go blank. And let me walk you through. I'm not going to try and be fancy with any alliteration or anything like that, although if alliteration comes out, don't worry. That's just my mind and the way it works. Okay? But I want you to hear how he deals with the charges. So he's been brought to the Sanhedrin, and the charges are you are blaspheming against the temple, and you are trying to abolish the law. And so the high priest simply asks, are these charges true? Stephen, in fine fashion, he decides to go with a history of the people. He starts with Abraham, and he works his way to present day. But the history is very, very interesting because of the way he brings it. He talks about God's activity with his people. But listen to some of the things he says. He brings up two very important characters in the history of Israel. In verse 9, he says, Because the patriarchs were Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. And then going down to verse 14, he says, After Joseph sent for his father Jacob and his whole family, 75 in all, he took care of them. Why is that significant? I'm going to bring that out in a little bit. But Joseph has historically gotten a bad rap from a lot of folks. He was a goody-goody. He didn't play well with his brothers. Some people fail to realize that his brothers were a wicked lot. Okay, He was the only one that was good, and he had a great relationship with his dad. Okay, When he had a dream, and this is the th- why his brothers were jealous of him, he had a dream that, by the way, God gave him. And again, it came true. He tried to share it with his brothers twice, and instead of anyone who had any semblance of relationship with God could say, hey, maybe this is God. His father had a little twinge, but his brothers, it just moved them to jealousy. They sold him into slavery. He goes into Egypt as a slave only to come back to be their savior. Interesting. He brings up another character, Moses. He says of Moses... At the time Moses was born, and he was of no ordinary child, for three months he was cared for by his family. When he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him up and brought him up as her own son. 
So Moses was born during the time when the whole influence that Joseph had over the Egyptians, that was over. A new king came up, and he was despitefully using the Israelites because they had grown so much, he began to he enslaved them. And because he enslaved them, he just treated them badly. There was one proclamation that he made that all the male children should be left out for exposure, basically to kill them. Moses, his mother and father, hid him for three months. And they tried to keep him safe. But when they couldn't anymore, they sent him down the river. He was found by Pharaoh's daughter and then brought up in the Egyptian uh, courts. Okay? When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian, so he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. The next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside Who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. I don't know if you're seeing the pattern, but every time God's chosen vessel shows up on the scene, the first thing that the Israelites have historically done was reject them. And the thing historically that has come, the second time they come, they come as a savior. And it's the same thing that happened with Moses. Moses rejected the first time only to come back to be the one that frees them from slavery. But, you know, the, the Sadducees could have said, well, those were just two men who rejected Moses. That wasn't the whole nation. But Stephen goes on and proves the point. He said, this Moses who told the Israelites, God will raise up a, a prophet like me, our ancestors refused to obey him. And this is how he puts this. Instead, they rejected him in their hearts, turning back to Egypt. The result of this was idolatry. So what they did was in rejecting God's chosen man, okay, when he comes back on the scene, that's when they finally get it. He saves them. But for the Israelite, it goes deeper than that as a nation. They watched God do miraculous things in freeing them from Egypt. But yet, shortly after that, they moved to idolatry. So now, if you see where this is going... Stephen is building a case not to defend himself, but to speak against his accusers. This is the kind of wisdom that I think we may need to take heed of. Because Stephen has his pulse, even as a Hellenistic Jew, he has his pulse on the issues that the Hebrews are suffering from. Now listen to this. So deep was the issue of idolatry with them that it says in verse 42, God turned away from them and gave them over to the worship of the sun, moon, and stars. He summarizes their whole history in this. This, what the sun, moon, and stars disagrees with what's written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings 40 years in the wilderness, people of Israel? This is God speaking. You have taken up the tabernacle of Molech and the star of your God, Rephan, the idols you made to worship. Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Stephen is laying it on thick. Not only is he saying that you were given to idol worship, he's hinting, as he talks about later on, he compares the tabernacle with the temple. And he's basically saying the tabernacle was really the standard because God gave every detail on how that's supposed to be made. And the way it worked was the tabernacle, the reason why it was a true standard was mainly because the tabernacle moved with God's people. God was not localized to one place like he was with the temple. 
Now, while Solomon built the temple, he was also the one who was directly responsible for ushering in this worship of idols because he took on all these foreign wives. Okay? Why is this important? Stephen is building the case that the thing that you are charging me with, you are the ones who are actually guilty of it. You are. Listen to what he says toward the end. You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one, and now you have betrayed and murdered him. You have received the law that was given through angels, but not have obeyed it. So they rejected the God's chosen person. They were guilty of idolatry, and they were, hypo- they were hypocrites. They didn't even listen to the law. They didn't even follow the law in any way, shape, or form. They were constantly violating in principle. See, Jesus had a big problem with the way they looked at the temple. He said that you have made my father's house a den of thieves, and it was designed to be a house of prayer. So we see that this is not just Stephen coming up with this. This is something that had been longstanding in the history of Israel. They did not do the temple justice because they did not do God justice. They did not worship him for who he actually was. The whole purpose of God freeing them from Egypt was so that they could freely worship him. But yet, they did not get that. Now, you know, with such a strong statement toward the end, you knew that wasn't going to be well received, and it was not. Listen to what they were saying. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. That's like, how could you do that? What are you talking about? But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing in the right hand of God. That vision, I think, was a signal. If Stephen didn't know when he walked into this trial that this would be the end, that vision was it. Normally, we see the Son of Man, as he describes it, sitting on his throne. Okay, When he stands, two things are possible. He stands to receive, which may be the case for Stephen, stands to receive him. He also stands in judgment in response to the way the uh, Sadducees and Sanhedrin have behaved. So when he sees Jesus standing, it's a signal to him. And both happen. The judgment did come. didn't come right away. But the Romans came and obliterated the temple. The very thing that stood as that idol worship for them In A.D. 70, they came and obliterated it altogether. So that judgment did come. But so did Stephen's death. He was the first martyr. He stood alone. And he stood courageously. But he stood because of the things that we talked about earlier. The standard by which the disciples gave us. There was this earnest resolve to maintain his vision. He never lost sight of Jesus. And we see this because of the response he says. Hey, look, after seeing Jesus in heaven, they hear him say that, they stick their fingers in their ears and start yelling so that they're basically saying what he is saying is blasphemous. They drag him outside the city and then begin to stone him. At this, listen to what Stephen says. Stephen being stoned, he says, while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Does that sound familiar? That's what Jesus said when he was dying. And then he says this. Then he fell as he was being stoned. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. 
and then he dies. If it were me, it'd be a little different. I'm going to take my teaching hat off. I'm going to take my preaching hat off because I don't want you to think that I want to be cavalier about this issue of death. The prospect of my death is not problematic for me because I'm going to be gone. But the prospect of you guys dying because you're my family, that bothers me a little bit more. But I want you to know that this is not an issue about preparing for death, but it's about an issue of living the life that God has given us. Let me help you out. See, if it were me being stoned, my prayer would be a little different. As I'm taking the, the stones, as I'm praying, Lord, burn them, please, because I, I don't like pain. And the prospect of having pain will divert my attention right away. The thought of pain will divert my attention. I would lose focus on the thing that Stephen focused on, which was his Savior. Because he did this for me, it's a small thing for me to do it for him. And see, that's why I have to take off my preaching hat and my teaching hat. Because I'm talking to you like a brother. I need you guys to keep reminding me like Stephen does. Because I see it in some of your lives. But if any of you are like me, and that for whatever reason, you don't like pain, or your career's taking you somewhere, or you're busy, when we have to stand alone, I fear we will fall. Because I know if I keep focusing on that pain or the avoidance thereof, I can't stand this strong. I can't be as strong as Stephen. So if any of you have any semblance of that same problem, like I just admitted to, hey, let's talk about it. Because the one thing that we can do to help each other is to help to encourage us to live the life that the witnesses, the early church, that Stephen, we have to encourage each other to live that way. And part of living that way is being ready for whatever might come. Some of us might live through it, other of us may not. But regardless of the case, we have got to stand strong because Jesus empowers us. The angel showing up on the scene, it lets us know that God has not restrained any resource in heaven for our benefit and in the help and the movement of his word, okay? That's why the, mess, the angel came through. He let them out for a particular reason, to keep moving forward. And all we need to do is tap into the resources, and part of those resources are you guys. And hence the reason why we have got to keep going out there, finding audiences, and being able to give the word, the way they did it. I want you to start to think about some of the things that we talked about today. I want you to really think about how you today stand. How do you see death? How do you see giving up or losing your career? What does that mean to you? What are some of your goals? If at the end of the day it has nothing to do with moving forward the message of God, let me just encourage you and warn you. There are elements now in our country that this kind of persecution may not be far away. So, don't think we are that safe. But don't worry. There's something more for us. Seated above, thrown in the Father's love. Destined to die, poured out for all mankind, God's only Son. 
God's only Son, perfect and spotless one. He never sinned and suffered as if He did. thank you so much for this time that we can just look into your word and be reminded, Lord God, of the wonder that you've given us through Jesus Christ. And Father, as we speak about him and his holy name, we remember that you raised him from the dead. When death grabbed him, Lord God, you said, let my son go, and he was let go and raised, he rised from the dead. We all can say amen to Father, help us to remember the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is evident and resident in us. Help us to be able to just show that to the world. That once again, your message will be advanced and people will come to know who you are. We thank you and praise you. In the matchless name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.